Hello, and welcome to A Mistake in Many Ways, How Lennon and McCartney Accidentally Broke the Beatles. In this series, we'll make the case that John never really meant to break up the band. It was all a ploy that went awry. Listeners, let me tell you. <laughs> when Phoebe and I first discussed the thesis of this podcast, I have to say, I was not convinced. Then I read all these quotes that we're about to dive into, and oh my gosh, it could not be clearer. It's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. So get ready. Buckle up. Yeah. Money back guarantee. If you're not convinced yeah. by the end of this podcast, please, you can get your zero dollars and zero cents back. <laughs> <laughs> no questions asked. Yes. People are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives for me and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, at Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Since the 1970s, we've been told that the last years of the Beatles were miserable, full of vicious personality clashes and rife with musical incompatibility. Lennon and McCartney had lost any sort of emotional bond they had once had, as Lennon's interest in the band evaporated in early 1968 and was forever replaced by obsession with his new wife and the artistic freedom she offered. After tolerating an increasingly insufferable McCartney for 18 painful months, Lennon had finally had enough. He quit the band and never looked back. We think that story is, to say the very least, flawed. In fact, we will posit that John Lennon never really quit the Beatles. But how can that be? Didn't John unequivocally resign in the so-called divorce meeting? Case closed, right? Well. It's true that in September 1969, John told Alan Klein and others around him that he wanted to leave the Beatles when he went to Toronto for his first live performance with the Plasticona Band. It's also true that a week later at an Apple board meeting, John told Paul he wanted a divorce. However, it is also an objective, unavoidable fact that after that meeting, John Lennon never took a single step to extricate himself from the Beatles. We know what you're thinking. Didn't Alan Klein ask Lennon to keep quiet in order to secure the new contract? Yeah, and John did. 
we'll discuss our opinions on this issue and why ultimately we still think John sincerely wanted the Beatles to continue. We propose that his desire to destroy the Beatles was a whim, a caprice that had run its course by the close of 1969. Because in the six months between September and April 1970, when Paul released the so-called breakup announcement, it is a fact that John never set a date to announce his exit, never served Paul with papers, consulted an attorney, or drafted a proposal on how to split their assets. In fact, John doesn't appear to have pushed McCartney on this issue at all. To the contrary, John began to publicly backpedal after only three months, then refused to let McCartney out of his contract, arguing under oath the following year that the breakup was unnecessary and unwarranted. In 1976, Australian Women's Weekly quoted John Lennon about the Beatles breakup. I always felt that splitting up was a mistake in many ways. We have every reason to believe Lennon meant what he said, because there's overwhelming evidence to support his statement. Take a look at John's behavior immediately following the breakup. He continues to work with Harrison and Starr throughout 1970 and 71. And by 1972, he's inviting McCartney to join him live on stage in New York. By the end of 1974, the Beatles were officially dissolved. John Lennon was on good terms with all his former bandmates and getting close to McCartney again. He had spent the last two years publicly entertaining some form of Beatles reunion. And his first impulse after finalizing the divorce was to head down to New Orleans to join McCartney in the studio. Despite Lennon's predictable efforts to save face after the fact, a closer look at his behavior and less defensive statements show he was gobsmacked by McCartney's departure and demonstrably hurt and frustrated by what he called Paul's aggressive pursuit of the divorce John himself first requested. John Lennon dropped a bomb on Paul McCartney with the words, I want a divorce. Then he stepped back and waited for Paul to make the next move. But to John's apparent surprise, rather than fight, Paul disengaged and disappeared. And after three months, when Paul had still made no counter move, John began to panic. From the start of the new year until Paul's official departure in April 1970, John began a series of increasingly bold measures to lure Paul back. Tactics that ran the gamut from sweet talk to bullying to belligerent and sometimes highly creative attempts at provocation. But Paul, devastated and humiliated by John's request for a divorce and feeling isolated by the three Beatles' increasingly clannish behavior, had ultimately been pushed too far. And when he finally let go of the band he had been fighting so hard to keep together, he sadly realized something vitally important. In his own words from the McCartney album press release, I have a better time with my family. Both Lennon and McCartney needed a break from the Beatles and from each other by the end of 1969, but neither wanted to permanently destroy the band. Nevertheless, as communication between the two men deteriorated, each refused to back down, and eventually, ironically, their mutual fears and insecurities drove them to a result neither had wanted in the first place. 
the breakup was a mistake. In 1970, Paul McCartney referred to the period between September and April as a trial separation. In our first episode, we'll provide backstory for the infamous divorce meeting, the event that triggers the standoff that will last for the next six months. We'll cover how Paul reacted in the meeting, immediately afterward, and during the next few days. It is here that the showdown begins. We all know the story by now. Ono replaced McCartney as London's primary collaborator in 1968. However, Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary has given this narrative a much needed reality check. While Lennon definitely shows excitement when Yoko Ono is allowed to collaborate with the Beatles, there's no indication that he desires to separate from the Beatles or prefers to jam with Ono alone. At Apple Studios one morning, John enthusiastically declares, Yoko, John and Paul, and Billy were doing their freakout, and expresses a wish to include the jam on one of Yoko's albums, which John would presumably produce. When Michael Lindsay Hogg says, the Beatles? John corrects him. No, no, Billy, Yoko, John and Paul. <laughs> the lights are working. You missed it. Yeah, I felt it as I left the second board. It was great. Yoko, John, and Paul, and Billy were doing their freak out. The Beatles, yeah. No, no. That's <laughs> Billy, Yoko, John, and Paul. Because <laughs> they're all on film. Yeah. What a great bit of film. Yes. The whole place is I'd like it to be part of a new LP. <laughs> Lennon's excitement about Paul McCartney playing with Yoko flies in the face of what we've been told for decades. It shows us that Lennon is not just hoping, but actively trying to integrate Ono into the Beatles and or vice versa, integrate McCartney into John and Yoko. John shows creative attraction to his wife and his bandmate simultaneously. These affections overlap rather than contradict each other, even as McCartney and Ono find themselves at odds and all three struggle to find a way to peacefully coexist. Yes, there is turmoil brewing, McCartney is clearly stressed by Ono's omnipresence, and in the infamous lunchroom tapes, John expresses some of the challenges of working with Paul. But Get Back also proves that they are heavily invested in each other and their own relationship, and most often shows them trying to connect, laughing, flirting, and creating together. And importantly, whenever they do connect, sparks still fly. So how do we process this information in light of the events that follow later in the year? The way John and Paul convey intentions and emotions to one another can be difficult, emotionally fraught, heavily coded, and easily overlooked or misinterpreted. Get Back shows something else massively revealing. That Paul McCartney himself can have trouble reading or hearing John Lennon's coded communication. Even though we see John repeatedly reach out to Paul through song lyrics, quips, double entendre, and other forms of repartee, sometimes McCartney seems to hear him, and sometimes he doesn't. 
In tapes, not included in Get Back, McCartney actually complains of John's reliance on telepathy. Well, that's, that's, that's the trouble, you see, because that's it. It's like with, your, with our heightened awareness, the answer is not to say anything, you know. But it isn't, because, I mean, we screw each other up totally when we don't do that, because we're not ready for your heightened vows of silence. We're really not ready. We don't know what the fuck each other's talking about. You know, we all just... Paul cannot read John's mind. Or if he used to, he can't anymore. As we go through the events following the divorce meeting, this reliance on nonverbal and coded communication will become increasingly important in understanding what happened. On September 8, 1969, at a meeting with Paul and George, John pitched a new idea. Going forward, McCartney, Lennon, and Harrison would each get a non-negotiable four songs per album, with two for Ringo if he wanted them. John also pitched some other ideas for the group, including a Christmas single, indicating that he was, at that point at least, very much planning to remain a Beatle. Paul may not have explicitly rejected the 4442 idea, although based on later comments, he definitely didn't like it. Beatles album space is finite, so while the new arrangement would be a well-deserved promotion for Harrison, it would conversely be a demotion for McCartney. And Paul, just like George, was overflowing with great songs at this time. So after his outsized efforts on Get Back and Abbey Road, being told by George and John that he should be demoted would undoubtedly be hurtful. Furthermore, their proposal would have likely felt to Paul like an ambush. It came only four months after the Liberty Bell incident, where John, George, and Ringo overrode Paul's objections to Alan Klein and appointed him the Beatles' new manager. Paul later admitted he considered this the ultimate violation of the band's esprit de corps. From George's and maybe John's perspective, 4442 may have been a rational solution to stave off potential conflicts over album space before they occurred. But from Paul's perspective, it could easily look like a crass timeshare of a fake band that is already disintegrated in spirit. Four solo artists cynically using the Beatles' name simply to increase sales. Perhaps most importantly, though, in this meeting, John blamed years of personal unhappiness squarely on Paul. As Mikhail Gilmore wrote for Rolling Stone in 2009, Lennon had also vented years worth of self-doubt and discontent and placed it all at McCartney's feet. Paul, he felt, had always eclipsed him, taking more time to realize the sounds he wanted in the studio, winning more approval from George Martin for his easy melodicism. Plus, Paul had simply written too damn much, in John's estimation. By the time they got to the Magical Mystery Tour sessions, Lennon said, you'd already have five or six songs, so I'd think, fuck it, I can't keep up with that. So I didn't bother, you know? And I thought, I don't really care whether I was on it or not. I convinced myself it didn't matter. And so for a period, if you didn't invite me to be on an album personally, if you three didn't say, write some more songs because we like your work, I wasn't going to fight. But Lennon added, there was no point in turning him out. I didn't have the energy to turn him out and get him on an album as well. Most reports say that Paul was sullen and passive in the meeting, not replying much. 
I mean, what are you going to say to something yeah. like that? Well, yeah. How do you respond to that? And then to add insult to injury in this same meeting, John floats the idea of separating the Lennon and McCartney songwriting credits. Um, now, we don't know the context of this, meaning we don't know exactly how John said it, if he explained himself to Paul, or even whether or not he actually meant it. But we do know that he says they should dismantle the myth of Lennon McCartney. What is the myth? Even though they are obviously writing independently, John and Paul are also still collaborating at this time. We see it in Get Back. Mm -hmm. And they've always written separately as well. Yeah. And they've always been straightforward about that. They've talked about that yeah. publicly since the very beginning. There was never a time yes. when they were like, we write everything together all the time. Nope. This is from early 1964. Normally we'd sit down and try and bash one out. Something. But then again, there's no formula because he can come up with one on day completely finished. We still say we both wrote it then. Yeah, and they, they even say that their collaboration takes all forms, all forms. like any, any combination of contributions you could think of, they've, they've done it that way. Here's John in 1968. It's all those combinations you can think of. Every combination of two people writing a song in as much that we can both write them completely separately and together and not together. But we obviously influence you so well. And, and furthermore, yeah. we have lots of examples of songs that they collaborated on that they added little bits to throughout 1969. I mean, there's I've Got a Feeling, Don't Let Me mm -hmm. Down, Two of Us, Ballad of John and Yoko, Sun King, You Know My Name, and probably more. Get Back. I mean, if there's one thing that we've learned emphatically over the past 50 years, it's that virtually every Lennon-McCartney song is liable to have at least a small contribution from both songwriters. Yeah, John and Paul obviously felt free to tinker or at, at the very least make suggestions on each other's songs. Yeah. Always. Yeah, well, I mean, they write, give me some truth together. Right. And I'm not saying that John should have credited Paul with it on this, you know, whatever. That's not matter, the point. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. not the point. <laughs> yeah. So this is my question. What is the big difference in their minds between the olden days of songwriting and how things changed in 68 and 69? If 68 and 69, they're still quite involved with each other's songs. Mm -hmm. If that is a huge departure from before, then doesn't that tell us about how close it was in the past? It must have been a lot closer than what we saw in Get Back. I mean, to me, the myth sounds personal. And this seems to be when John starts to talk about the so-called Beatles myth. And of course, the following year he writes, the dream is over. We'll continue to unpack that more as we go along. Any which way, we don't know how serious a proposal this was because as, as far as we know, neither of them ever talked about it again. Mm -hmm. so we're kind of just speculating now but it you know it's possible that the beatles rejection of cold turkey played into this that's seems reasonable to me um sure like, in other words maybe john's suggesting um he could keep paul's name off of cold turkey right if paul was worried about his name being associated with the heroin song maybe the lennon mccartney credit on give peace a chance played into it 
In other words, maybe Yoko, who certainly had more of a contribution to give peace a chance than Paul did, maybe she was like, fuck this. Why is Paul's name on our song? Mm-hmm. Like enough, separate your names already. Yeah. Which is not unreasonable. Nope. It's also unclear what the full extent of Paul's reaction was. I haven't heard too much of the tape, but we do know that he says almost nothing other than he sort of quietly says it's not that bad at the end. Right. So it's possible that John didn't get the reaction he wanted. Whatever that would have been. Did he want Paul to fight back or agree with him or show he was hurt? Yeah. The one reaction John wouldn't have wanted was the one he got, which was no reaction. Right. If you say to your spouse, look, I'm going on a weekend work trip and you know that person I spend all my time with? Yeah, I might fuck them this weekend. (laughs) And your spouse (laughs) just calmly goes, hmm. (laughs) You know, that is not the reaction anyone would want in that situation. Unless John took that as an answer. Yeah. Well, if if we think this proposal on John's part wasn't completely sincere, Paul not reacting, John might have just thought, oh, okay, he saw through that. If that's the case, then your only option is to up the stakes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you have a partner who refuses to show vulnerability when you need them to, when you really, really need them to. Yeah. If you have a partner whose go-to is to shut down. Mm-hmm then you might eventually be pushed to do or say some drastic stuff. Mm -hmm. Especially if you are reeling from all of the things that have happened in in this one month, September, 1969 is bonkers. So just as a quick reminder, in the 30 days leading up to the divorce meeting, John and Yoko had quit heroin. And then also relapsed. Mm -hmm. And then John writes cold turkey. The Beatles reject cold turkey. Mm -hmm. He flies to Toronto, has an amazing performance. Paul has a baby. Then the 4442 meeting. Then John and Paul lose Northern Songs after several very, very tense days of negotiation. Wherein I, I think it's fair to say mistakes were made on both sides. Yes, for sure. And then the next day we have the divorce meeting. So just all of those things having just happened, it's not remotely surprising that John might be in a weird headspace and say something drastic. Yeah. Well, something's got to give. Exactly. Something's got to give. Yeah. I mean, in this meeting, he, he basically tells Paul, like, I was depressed and you didn't even seem to care. Yeah. Is that more what he's trying to say rather than I saw your happiness and it directly caused my unhappiness. Like, is he saying more, if you had known or cared how unhappy I was, there's no way you could have been so happy and productive. You either didn't notice or you didn't care. Yes. If we're giving John the benefit of the doubt, yes. I think he's saying like, you could have asked me if something was wrong. Mm -hmm. To have Paul's back, maybe he just figures like the the thing that's going to motivate John to write great songs is competing with me. So the more yeah. great songs I write, the more great songs he's going to write. Yeah, could be. Or, you know, maybe it's simpler. We saw how John reacted to Paul in Get Back. 
just being around Paul gave John happiness. It made him smile and laugh and twinkle and beam. And I know it wasn't like that all the time, but maybe Paul thought just being there with John was the, was the best he could do because John seemed to feel better when they were together. Yeah, but what he's saying is because, and we parse this out a little bit further down, but like if he's saying the time that I was depressed was that time you weren't around you chose to live apart from me right yeah we had a spot you, for you here and you said yeah. fuck you guys i'm going to london <laughs> and i needed you and you didn't give a shit it was a highlight of your fucking life best time oh, of your life right yeah. paul yeah but my point is more that maybe paul was less aware of john's depression because john's mood improved when they were together mm. so maybe he didn't see it as much oh, yeah i could see that I see what you yeah mean. well and we have evidence to support that because we see how they are and get back but we also have fact that apparently this is a known phenomenon within their circle because pete shotton said that their strategy oh, yeah. when john was feeling humiliated and more fucked up than pete had ever seen him after india that that they all decided that sending john off to be alone with paul is what john needed that's a great point yeah the quote is actually from bob spitz's book he writes about india um, according to pete shotton who was spending time with john at weybridge there was an overriding feeling of humiliation from the maharishi from the apple boutique shambles from his deteriorating marriage from what he felt was his shrinking position in the beatles he was more fucked up than I'd ever seen him, Shotton remembers. It seemed like everything was going to the dogs. He'd been desperately grasping at straws, as far as I was concerned, and there wasn't even a straw there. And then he writes, it came as a welcome relief that John and Paul, along with Neil Aspinall, planned a quick trip to New York on May 11th, where several press events had been scheduled to announce Apple Records in the States. Friends agreed that getting John away might do him a world of good. Being alone with just Paul to study him might have a calming influence. So Paul being good for John's mood, Paul being a calming and steadying influence on John is known within the group and here is relied upon during a crisis. That's pretty striking. Because I think, because we do get wrapped up in like the pain that Paul caused John unintentionally but still like he was obviously in a lot of pain about their relationship or the way it ended yeah but sometimes it's easy to forget that they were very close and very good friends and their relationship wasn't perfect but that paul is generally speaking a stabilizing factor in john's life and has been since he was 16 years old mm-hmm to the point where John's other friends rely on that fact. Yeah. The argument I'm having is like, well, but if John is, is so upset and freaked out and whatever, having a crisis over his relationship with Paul, isn't it mm -hmm. a terrible idea to send him off with Paul? Well, maybe it, maybe it was this time. Yeah. Well, maybe you know, not everybody is, is privy to exactly what's going on between the two of them. Yeah. And also, even if, even if they get, 
the impression that there's some sort of issue happening between them it might be a matter of like lock them in a room together and get them to work it out whatever the problem is Mm -hmm. and also if they don't they might not know what it is might just be like oh i don't know are they having a tiff or something that's you know par for the course (laughs) just send them off into a hotel room for a a day or two and they'll work it out because that's usually their pattern exactly they'll kiss and make up right and it will be none the wiser and we don't care what's going on you know (laughs) let them deal with it and work it out and it it makes sense because sometimes your closest friend lifts you up so much and lets you feel like you're your best self around them so you might not want to show them or tell them what a dark place you're in even if you're in Mm. a depression not because you're afraid they'll think less of you or judge you or whatever but because it's nice to have a break and just yeah. enjoy the fact that you feel better around them. But I still also feel like there was a little bit of like, guess what? I wasn't great. I was lying to you. I was pretending I felt great. Mm-hmm. And you should have seen through that. Yeah. Or even like I was doing that for you to make you happy. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Th- that's the kind of stuff that people really do develop resentments about. Yep. Deep resentment. I feel like I have to perform around you. Yeah, I don't want you to be disappointed in me. Yep. Well, and how many accounts do we have? And they both kind of support this, that they don't want to, they never want to show weakness to each other. I know. Paul says that about John all the time, which is weird because a lot of people say that the opposite, that John felt pretty free to be very vulnerable around other people and, and say out loud how awful he was feeling about himself but it from what paul says that wasn't necessarily true of their relationship well people also say that john you know could spot weakness from a mile away and would exploit it and you know would target (laughs) people's weaknesses right brutally yeah so maybe john feels like he has a safe space to share all of his feelings but maybe that doesn't mean that he treats Paul's vulnerabilities with care and safety and protection although maybe he I don't know or maybe he does maybe it's Paul's issue I don't know yeah yeah well that I had always thought that that John probably was not understanding or uh, delicate about Paul's weaknesses but get back definitely showed a different side of him like he does seem protective and attentive to Paul yeah I agree well, remember that story about George saying that Paul wouldn't take his hand when he was having a bad trip and you know how yeah. like I don't trust Paul because he doesn't trust me and like maybe yeah. John got that off of Paul too like you have to trust me it's okay to show vulnerability I'm not gonna punch you in the nuts mm-hmm. except for the times when I do well <laughs> I mean that'd be that would be scary yeah it would be scary yeah but you yep. know then again according to alan klein anyway john told him that whenever he opened up to paul paul hurt his feelings like paul yeah. hurt him but then again you know paul said the same thing off the record to hunter davies that john hurt him many many times and no one ever talks about that that's true 
he never gave an inch well he was like what about when he called my music music it's like we do know about like how do you sleep like the things John did are real big and public and permanent Mm -hmm. but then it's you know it is easy it is easier to forgive someone who does that if they then turn around and a apologize but also express how insecure and inadequate they feel usually yeah if if someone's that open with you there's no way for that not to kind of make you go oh well as long as you are forgiving and patient mm-hmm. like i would take that from a child right you know like exactly. you know a child is going through something a whatever a divorce or a, a personal issue or something like that you you it's not gonna hurt you when they say shitty things you know right yeah so quick aside um not for nothing but usually people who have trust issues have them for a reason mm-hmm. like they don't just have them to make other people feel sad or because they <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what i mean they're not born out of selfishness so that is frustrating right yeah exactly they've had they'd have them because they've had their trust betrayed in the past absolutely we don't fucking hold it against like a sheltered dog who was beat you know we're just like your dog sucks (laughs) what a cold-natured jerk that dog is (laughs) he's so manipulative (laughs) so john definitely might have legitimate issues with paul that deserve some attention but during this meeting isn't really the most appropriate time to bring them up (laughs) yes i agree this is not the time or place no if john's like i was depressed you didn't care you've been emotionally unavailable for years and by the way you're getting less album space now what do you think of them apples what is paul (laughs) how's he supposed to react to that you know yeah yeah i just sit there too yeah and and hear him out and be like okay i would like to just talk about john needs his bandmates to specifically personally tell him to write more or he just won't yeah that's wild and it's wild okay so it's wild when you think about how big a star he was and like what a great talent he was but also like the way that this period is portrayed like it's portrayed as if john thinks he's too good for paul it's Mm, it's uh the fucking opposite of what's happening in his own words so it doesn't matter how talented john is or how great we think he is what's important is how john feels about himself yeah the fact that he needs to be coaxed into contributing to his own band might sound extreme but that's just the reality of how it is so it's not for us to judge about whether he should or shouldn't feel that way but that is a lot to put on the other band it's a lot to to put on yeah and it's not surprising that they wouldn't always well a wouldn't intuit it naturally well for sure and then b would find that hard to provide at a time when they need support and encouragement too and they're all competing it's kind of a lot to ask of someone to do it it is definitely a lot to ask and again it's it's not about whether john deserves it or not 
if John's problem is that he doesn't get enough reaction from Paul, A, he might, like we've said, be motivated to like, well, I'm just going to escalate then until I get a reaction. But he also might think or at least tell himself that Paul won't be as hurt. Yeah, that's even true. If he, even if he does super, 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 super hurtful things. It's not like hurting a regular person. No, like obviously Paul doesn't care. Because right. I fucking opened my chest in the last fucking meeting and he didn't he didn't do anything yeah like he doesn't fucking care he's just gonna pretend like it never happened which he did which he did (laughs) (laughs) all right so four days later On September 12th, John headlined the Rock and Roll Revival Festival in Toronto with the Plastic Ono Band, an impromptu jam band. He was massively energized and empowered by the performance, uh, and it is either on the way to or from this show that he decided he was going solo and leaving the Beatles. A week after that, on September 19th, John and Paul lost controlling interest in their song publishing company northern songs the very next day on september 20th the band met to renew their record contract by now we know what happened in that meeting john paul ringo yoko and linda and alan klein were all present before signing a new contract paul asked his bandmates how they wanted to continue the beatles paul pitched the idea of doing some small live shows an idea he later pursued with his band wings John objected to the idea of the Beatles playing live, replying, I think you're daft, and told Paul he wanted to leave the band. He said to Paul, in front of Ringo, Alan Klein, and both their wives, I want a divorce. Paul says his jaw dropped and describes John as getting a rush off of hurting him. In many years from now, he says, Everybody blanched except John, who colored a little and said, it's rather exciting. It's like I remember telling Cynthia I wanted a divorce. And I think from what he was saying, there was an adrenaline rush that came with the telling. Immediately afterward, Paul discovered that Alan Klein knew of John's decision to quit and had advised him not to tell Paul in order to dupe Paul into signing the new contract. Alan Klein then reminded John not to say anything publicly about his decision to leave. A gobsmacked Paul went ahead and signed the contract that everyone else seemed gung-ho about and went home in a daze. Mal Evans, who drove Paul home from the meeting, says that in the privacy of his own house, Paul cried his eyes out for an hour, as did Mal. We were in Apple's three Savile Row, and John said, it's over, you know? And I drove Paul home, and we got to Paul's house, and he spent the next hour in the house crying his eyes out, and I just wandered around the garden like a lost soul, just crying. So I definitely feel so much for Paul in this moment. Of course. You know, a a sort of simple, simplistic read of that situation is that Paul's crying because he's upset about losing the Beatles and he's upset about losing John but I also think we should just slow down and 
take a moment to appreciate like what actually is happening here because aside from losing the band losing his partnership losing his friend john's actions here are incredibly hurtful so in my opinion at least it's just as likely that paul is crying not just because he's hurt by the loss but yeah but because of john's behavior exactly and the reason i'm bringing this up is because i i I don't think (laughs) that with that this incident should be flattering towards john like oh look at how much paul loves john he's crying Paul's tears are such a testament to how desirable John is as a partner. But okay, there's that story at the the election night party where John mm. takes a mm. woman into the bathroom and has sex with her loudly and everybody at the party can hear and Yoko is listening and she's humiliated and she's crying. Like, I don't think we should use that incident to be like, oh, look at how much Yoko is in love with John she's crying you know (laughs) yes because she's crying because she's being fucking humiliated that is a terrible thing that he did right regardless of what john's trying to accomplish or what john wants from doing this to paul the method he chose was to humiliate paul in front of everybody in in a board meeting for the official record like this is now how the beatles breakup is going to go down in history Paul is going to have to tell this fucking humiliating story for the rest of his life. I think it's very disrespectful. And we think it's intentionally hurtful. Completely. It it is akin to, you know, fucking the woman at the party in front of Yoko. Yeah. And you could argue like, well, John wasn't thinking ahead. He wasn't thinking into the future, but like, the the repercussions of him doing it that way is that for the rest of Beatles history, Paul is known as the guy who got dumped across the table in a board meeting. This argument that he was just ripping the Band-Aid off. He's so honest. He couldn't tell a no. lie. He was relieved because then he didn't have to keep secrets from Paul. And so it was better on on his conscience. I don't believe that for a second because if that was true, then he would immediately have been like, oh my god that's such a weight off paul i'm sorry that i I said it this way everything's gonna be okay we'll work everything out i'm gonna tell fucking alan to make sure that you're happy with everything i'm happy with everything we'll figure it out to where it's mutually agreeable our friendship is gonna be fine and we're gonna have solo careers and we're gonna be happier this way but right now i just need some i need to go do my own thing and i think you do too and i love you and let's hug and you know there will be tears and whatever and none of that happened no i mean at the very least you know if john's honesty had just gotten the better of him and he blurted it out unless he was in a headspace of i want to hurt this person he would have immediately gone oh uh sorry 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 shit um can you meet me in the bathroom like well let's let's talk one-on-one before this meeting goes forward Instead, Paul distinctly remembers John being cruel about it. In fact, 50 years later in his lyric book, he says, John said, well, I'm not doing it. I'm leaving. Bye. In the ensuing moments, he was giggling and saying how this felt really thrilling. Like, 
telling someone you're going to divorce them and then laughing at the time obviously that was wildly hurtful talk about a knockout blow you're lying on the canvas and he's giggling and telling you how good it feels to have just knocked you out that is not at all the you know john's clean conscience and decency got the better of him story no that's john being vicious yeah and also, by the way, we're sticking with Alan Klein. He's still in charge of the Beatles, even though he's withholding vital information from you to get you to sign a contract under false pretenses, which will not and did not hold up in court. This is a guy who withheld information about their publishing company for the express purpose of yes. exposing that information at such a time as to create maximum damage yes. to the partnership of Lennon-McCartney. He weaponized one partner against the other from the very start. He maximized distrust and ill will amongst the Beatles for leverage. And that forever disqualifies him as an appropriate manager for the Beatles. Maybe that makes him a, a perfectly fine manager for John, if John's willing to destroy his personal relationships in the pursuit of money. But right. it doesn't make him appropriate for the Beatles. And we're not arguing that the Beatles should have signed with the Eastmans. No. That's a that's beside the point. Yeah, I don't well, care Paul, about that at yeah. all. I'm arguing that, that Klein is not good. Yes, exactly. Like you say, he since he was immediately so thoroughly on John's side, maybe it would have been fine for him to be John's manager. But if he wants to be Paul's manager too. Then he has to be a good manager for Paul as well. All I can say is that if a person who was trying to earn my business cornered me in my workplace and screamed at me so loud it could be heard by my employees in the adjoining room, refused to take my calls in front of my employees to undermine my authority in my own company, and referred to me with a demeaning nickname like the reluctant virgin, if there was a threat that this person was going to have access to my money and my career, I would totally file a lawsuit to prevent that from happening. If that's what it took, yeah. In a heartbeat. We know that this was not an anomaly in Klein's behavior because Klein is the sort of person who eventually always became to be at odds with whoever he worked with. Doesn't matter how great Alan is to you at the beginning, the relationship will end with acrimony yeah. and lawsuits and for Klein, jail. And that's fine. That's one thing. You know what I mean? Like, not fine, but it's sometimes you're like well that's showbiz baby that's how it works you know sure. like everybody's in it for themselves he's supposed to be um a, a scoundrel like that's what john likes about him right the most embarrassing part is how john thinks this guy loves him and is like his new daddy oh, that's right that is upsetting yeah i mean that's true our uh indignation so far has been about his treatment of paul but on the whole, his treatment of John was just at least as bad. He wasn't as aggressive, at least not at first, but he was manipulative. And like, I get that it's embarrassing that the other three Beatles got seduced by this yeah. guy. And I get that, you know, if you love 
John, George, and Ringo so much, you're going to try to look for a way to justify what they did. I understand that. I do. But the best defense they have is that they got taken by a con man. Yeah. But like, you don't defend supporters of Trump by arguing that Trump's not that bad. Right. So what was John thinking when he said, I want a divorce? The service explanation in most books, like the official explanation, is just that John lacked empathy for even his own partner in the longest, most successful relationship of his life. And when he was done with people, he tossed them aside without a second thought. So in this case, he was done with the Beatles and happy to be moving on to greater things. And so when he said it felt great, he was just being candid and selfishly paying no mind to Paul's feelings because all he cared about was himself and Yoko. That's the official explanation. But given that John paid an enormous amount of attention to Paul and continued to care deeply about him for the rest of his life, good or bad, you know? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. We just think that that is ludicrous. Um, Some people think John was evil and that he actively enjoyed hurting people just for the power trip that it provided him. There is some evidence of that, um, of John being sadistic, especially in his younger years, being cruel to people randomly. Um, So it's possible that he was a sadistic, narcissistic person on occasion, and this was just one of those occasions. But I think it's just as likely that in John's mind, he felt he had a good reason to act this way. Whether it was because he wanted Paul to appreciate him or was trying to threaten Paul, or maybe he felt that Paul wasn't hearing him didn't hear him in the last meeting you know and to get through to him finally he needed to shock him maybe he's like this is your wake-up call bitch yep for the purposes of this podcast we're gonna go on the assumption that john was not a monster yeah and if you think he is then you need to stop talking about him as being an idealistic honest yeah, and, and the other Beatles too. If they're trying to hang on to Paul when Paul wants to be let go because the manager they've chosen is abusing him and they want to hang on to him and force him to stay with them because they want the share of his solo earnings, that makes them bad. So stop fucking defending that. Okay. So if we concede that John could be cruel, but we we don't believe that John is a human monster. What are we suggesting? That it was complicated. Extremely complicated. We're certainly not the first people to suggest a more nuanced view of the breakup. 
We owe a debt to the aforementioned Mikhail Gilmore, who wrote a cover story on the breakup for Rolling Stone in 2009. We'll link both his article and Rolling Stone's subsequent interview with him in the show notes. Um, but we just want to pull a few things right now. Talking about his 12 months of research for the article, Gilmore says, not surprisingly, the various historians, critics, biographers, musicologists, sociologists, and journalists I read had strong views about whose motives accomplished what in the debacle, who was guilty, and who was simply helpless in the sweep of events. In truth, there were good guys and no villains, but because these were fallible people, they certainly made some grievous errors. Through all my research, certain conclusions became inevitable, and they managed to surprise me a bit. The Beatles' end was an accident, a maneuver by John Lennon that went horribly wrong. He called the breakup a tragedy and said McCartney had been forced into an impossible position by John Lennon, George Harrison, and Alan Klein. And he further concludes, But what I found most troubling, most tragic in all of this, was two things. Both Lennon and Harrison, Lennon clearly in particular, did their best to sabotage the Beatles from mid-1968 onward. And when it all came irrevocably apart, I think that both men regretted what they had wrought. I don't think that John Lennon and George Harrison, but Lennon again in particular, truly meant the Beatles to end, even though they might not have known it in the moment. I think they meant to shift the balance of power. I think they meant for the Beatles to become, in a sense, a more casual form of collaboration. And I think they clearly intended to rein in Paul McCartney. But they overplayed their hand and, there's no way around it, they treated McCartney shamefully during 1969 and unforgivably in the early months of 1970. Now, there are points in Gilmore's interview where we disagree, particularly, he says Lennon was inarguably the Beatles' true genius which let's just say that's arguable and leave it at that. And he says that Paul certainly loved John more than John had loved him, which let's just say agree to disagree. Let's also say, have you seen Get Back since you wrote this article? Well, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, this article is 13 years old now. That's true. It's true. That said, I am also side-eyeing his claim that John and George did their best to sabotage the band since 1968. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> it's a little bit of a reach. I... I mean, Gilmore is different from the mainstream narrative at this time in that he doesn't defend John and George. He says, mm -hmm. no, they were being awful. And it's their behavior that destroyed the band. They gave Paul no choice. And he says the reason they're acting that way is just because they were being money-hungry dicks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, here is the assumption that John must have behaved the way he did in this period, which, to be fair, often looks cruel or callous because he didn't love Paul. Right. We're going to look at the same events here, but through a different lens. As we always say here on ACOM, we believe that John loved Paul every bit as much. And if we look at these events through that lens, what do we discover that we have so far been unable to see?
one question that Beatle writers have never been able to sufficiently answer is why is John so upset by Paul's departure? If he wanted to break up with Paul so badly, why didn't he just wash his hands after the McCartney album came out? Uh, momentary embarrassment or chest puffing, you know, aside. Well, right. The way to bolster the chest puffing of <laughs> yes. I left, not you, is to let the other one leave when they ask to. Exactly. And Paul, <laughs> if that's the impression you want to create, then you let, then let the other me person go. go. Right. Yeah. Paul asked for a quickie divorce repeatedly yeah. throughout summer and John wouldn't cooperate. And it was not because of terms. John was just stalling. He didn't even entertain the details of what Paul was saying. He wasn't negotiating. Yeah. Paul wrote him a like 11 page letter or whatever it was. And, and John just re responded with a picture of himself going, why? Mm hmm. How can you ask why I want the divorce that you asked me for? The real question is why is John holding on so tight? Exactly. Yeah. If he's eager to get Paul out of his life, he would cut and run. That's what you do when you have yeah. a person in your life that you don't want in your life anymore. You start cutting deals to get them out of your life. And I know because I've been there, you start giving yep. them more than they deserve yep. to get them yes. out of your life so that they don't come back. Yeah. Paul was not asking for a lot. It's not like he was trying to take 50% of John's wealth. No, I didn't ask for him for anything. He literally just said like, can you please cut me out of this? I don't want to be tied to you anymore. Yeah. If John's motivation was purely financial. That was a prime opportunity for him, for him to ask. Yes. To ask for some terms from Paul. If yes. Paul wants to leave, that is a good opportunity. Excellent point. He could have driven a hard bargain and he could be like, I can't fucking wait to cut you out of my life, McCartney. This is what I want though. If you or, can give me yeah. a good payoff, then you can have your freedom. Yeah. You might send a picture of yourself, but the little speech bubble would say what'll you give me what's in it for me it wouldn't say why and the whole thing about like I understand that at the very least client told them there was some sort of tax conflict but again what a great opportunity to be like okay well if you will settle in such a way as to offset our tax liability uh, then I, I'll I let you go jo see that's the thing is I think Alan Klein's avarice is a cover for John's uh, emotional needs. Yes. Avarice is the fig leaf. Yeah, there's there's no other reason for, for John not to comply unless it wasn't what John wanted. After Paul's departure, John commits himself to four months of inpatient therapy, basically institutionalizes himself with a radical psychotherapist who, by the way, said he had never seen a patient in as much pain as John. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to believe that even though that's occurring at precisely the moment that Paul leaves, that's a mere coincidence and it has nothing to do <laughs> with the pain that John is currently in. That is a real, like, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining situation. <laughs> It's made so much more ridiculous by the fact that it is universally believed and repeated all the time. <laughs> it is controversial 
to suggest that John institutionalizing himself in 1970 had anything to do with the Beatles breakup. Yeah, that is outside of the mainstream narrative. It would be very easy to say, well, it wasn't just about Paul. He's losing, you know, the security of his of his career, his support system, and his entire life was changing. You know, they wouldn't even have to admit that it had to do with loving or missing Paul. But the fact they don't even do that, it's like we can't we can't even yeah. glance to the side or we'll go off the cliff. Right, right, right. Which, and by the way, I agree with all that too. I don't think of it's course. all about Paul. I think of course, of course it's about, you know, the Beatles, his identity, this band that he's invested his whole life in. Of course, it's all of those things. Right. But the yeah, foundations of his life shaking. But Paul is central to crumbling. those things. And always has been. Like for instance, after the divorce being Paul going home crying, it's like, of course he's upset about of course. John. But, you know, as we're arguing, it's not just John, it's all of these other things. It's the, the mm -hmm. infrastructure of the Beatles that's gone. It's not having a job. It's not having something to do every day. Feeling useless, feeling betrayed. But feeling betrayed, mm -hmm. exactly. Having his three best friends now not talking to him. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, of course, it's all of these things at once. And why would it not be the same for John? It just happens to be at a different time. It just happens mm -hmm. to be six months later. Yeah. Well, and his coping method is very different. It's easy for us to accept that McCartney is in pain and depressed and sad and having an identity crisis after the breakup. But somehow we resist the idea that John Lennon's going through the same thing, even though it's plain as day. And the fact that Paul has at some point been transparent about his grief and not wanting the band to break up makes it a lot easier to accept. I get that because, you know, John came out of primal scream therapy, throwing proverbial punches at the Beatles and mm -hmm. shit talking and bragging about how much better off he was without Paul. And then going like, oh yeah, I talked about my mom and therapy. So everybody goes, oh, okay. But we have to be able to like <laughs> see through that a little bit. It is crazy to expect John to come out in 1970 and say, Paul broke my heart. He's not going to say yeah. that. No. I think a really good piece of evidence that John's pain in primal scream therapy might be, I don't know, connected to the Beatles breakup is the fact that after the McCartney album press release, John and Yoko fly to LA and check themselves into psychiatric care for four months, literally within two weeks. The McCartney album press release goes live April 10th. The album is released 17th and John and Yoko are on a plane to LA on April 23rd. And maybe it was planned before, you know, before the announcement, but we couldn't find evidence one way or the other about that. I think it's often just assumed that it was pre-planned because, you know, we can't allow for it to look like in any way that it was a reaction to Paul's announcement or the Beatles breaking up because remember that didn't hurt John or even impact him in any way it's just kind of a minor you know although if they had pre-planned to do months of full-time therapy with Janov starting in April like that's more support for John never intending to announce the breakup right because what he's just gonna 
forget about it and leave the Beatles on ice for another six months? Like, what was he planning to do? Is True. He was going to skip the Let It Be premiere and s- still keep pretending that the band was fine? When he puts out Instant Karma, he says, I'm planning on making a record with Phil Spector. So it sounds like that's what he was planning to do, not go full time into therapy. He sounds like he was actually planning to make a record before this happened. So so I'm a skeptic on that. I don't think it was pre-planned. Having said that, we can't conclusively prove. We can't, no. Yeah, that one is directly triggered by the others, but that's the sequence of events. The default position shouldn't be that this must be a coincidence unless proven otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, right. The default should be maybe this giant, massive change in his life and him checking himself into inpatient psychological care might be related to play with the role reversal. Again, suppose Paul had never admitted that his breakdown and depression was about the Beatles let's say he always said it was about his mother's death yeah but we have the timeline of the divorce meeting and then Paul was just saying a week later I fell into a massive nervous breakdown the likes of which I'd never known it was about my mother no one would believe that exactly And I don't want to deny, because it is definitely true that John has a lot of unresolved pain from his childhood, but I feel like that is sort of the easy explanation that's just, it's too easy for people to always fall back on that as the explanation for all of John's issues. Yes. And those issues are abandonment, by the way. Right. Yeah. Attachment issues. So seriously like that like your best friend saying i i don't want to be part of your life anymore you that, that's not going to trigger your abandonment issues mm-hmm. i mean we're not even playing psychologist here i'm just asking like as a sentient human being right right an adult person with a mind like you really that's not going to play into it like if you're if your issue is abandonment and then you get abandoned i mean I think you will find that if you talk to people who have committed themselves to psychiatric treatment, inpatient psychiatric treatment, it is very, very usually in response to an acute trauma. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. triggered by something immediately preceding the hospitalization. Very rarely does someone check themselves into a psych ward purely because of latent childhood issues you know divorce is one of the most traumatic things an adult can go through Mm -hmm. it is up there with like death of a family member major illness and yes of course let's hope most of the time a divorce leaves the two parties better off right yes yeah absolutely divorce is a wonderful thing you know, before women had the right to divorce, they had to endure all kinds of awful, terrible things. So yes, yes, we're very pleased that divorce is now readily available and that women have access to it and men too, you know. Um, Having said that, (laughs) divorce is super traumatic for people. And I've seen it. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen it. We all know people 
close to us who have been divorced this is not like a mm -hmm. little thing it's very frustrating to me to have that even amongst people who acknowledge that it was traumatic for paul mm -hmm. who act as if it didn't affect john at all and it didn't that hurt it him. was right that it was nothing but a relief there's no evidence that supports that there's no absolutely nothing that you can point to to say that that was a relief and something he was happy about even when he talked about it in positive terms it was a qualified positivity he didn't talk about it with joy it, yeah. the most positive he got would was, be like well i guess it had to happen yes paul did eventually open up about how hard that period was for him but not until the 80s so for again if we're gonna like we talked about in pizza and fairy tales if we're gonna compare apples to apples yeah john didn't get time he never he, he got did the not. opportunity to own right. up to it right he did not outlive his own bravado right yeah so phoebe i have a question uh, sure <laughs> If we're saying that John wasn't the dominant, decisive leader in the breakup situation, if he instead is hurt and scared and vulnerable, does that mean that we're saying it was Paul who was the dominant, decisive leader? No. Uh, oh, oh, good. I, I think John is taking bold actions. Let's put it that way. But we think that John and Paul both are sad and hurt and scared we don't think there's a breakup leader <laughs> <You know? laughs> i think there are power plays going on mm -hmm. but like to me i don't think of married couples as like mm, which one's the leader you know right. i mean if you do like if you're into that if you have a master slave situation in your relationship <laughs> go for it again not here to kink shame anybody i don't think that that's the situation here I think this is two equal people who have power plays from time to time. Yeah. John and Paul were both devastated by the breakup, but John channeled his hurt and pain into anger and defiant public rejection of Paul. Yeah. And it's easy to understand why this defiant rejection is interpreted as a lack of love. <laughs> of course. But. John's behavior after the breakup looks, feels, and sounds more to us like John's method of coping with the embarrassment, hurt, grief mm -hmm. caused by their split. And that's in perfect keeping with both men's styles. John may have wanted power. He may have wanted Paul to beg him to stay. He may have wanted to hurt Paul for any number of resentments he had been building up for years. And he definitely wanted Paul to sign with Klein. What he didn't want and didn't expect was for Paul to come back six months later and say, you want a divorce? Where do I sign? So Paul comes home from the divorce meeting. He breaks down. He does not call John up a few days later and beg to save the band. He appears to have believed that this was the end. And over time, he's stuck to that story. In this series, we're gonna show you a shocking amount of outreach to Paul from John during this trial separation period. 
Yet, not only does Paul refuse to acknowledge any of John's overtures at this time, to this day, he maintains his position that the fate of the band was out of his hands the moment John said he wanted to divorce. Okay, why do we think Paul says this still? Maybe it's just easier to keep the story simple from a practical standpoint. Like we know Paul likes his scripts and the more complicated he makes the story, the more chance there is of people misunderstanding him or trying to argue with him about oh. his own life, which is frustrating, I'm sure. It also might be easier emotionally because he might regret not responding to John's yeah. overtures. Yeah. Most importantly, though, I think he doesn't want the blame. <laughs> Meanwhile, John really, really wants the blame and says so for the rest of his life. And so what's Paul going to say? If he contradicts John's story that Paul didn't quit, I sacked him, then that makes Paul look like the asshole. Meaning what? Meaning he is, his giant ego <laughs> is deluding him into thinking John secretly wanted him back. So that's a whole like tangled web. That's a big topic. So we will continue to <laughs> unpack that more as we go along in this series. Trying to see it from Paul's perspective. Even if you want something like a group to stay together or a marriage to get better or whatever, it might eventually, it might not be enough to want it more than anyone else because eventually it doesn't feel good to be the one who wants it more than anyone else. Mm. You know, yeah. like sometimes yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to be that person anymore. And if other people aren't, if they're pushing you away, regardless of why, regardless of why that just feels no, bad it feels yeah. bad and sometimes it feels so bad that you have to maybe overcompensate even and be like okay fine if you change your mind you can you can come tell me so but I'm not gonna push and hope and wait and pray and nudge and try to interpret your non-explicit language I mean, that's yeah. just a horrible, horrible place to be. <laughs> it, it's demeaning. The other part of the quote from Anthology was, Paul says, I didn't really know what to say. We had to react to him doing it. He had control of the situation. So even Paul saying John had control of the situation, that suggests that he kind of knows or suspects that it was a power play doesn't necessarily mean it was an insincere power play like you can simultaneously genuinely want to leave someone and also want to exert power over them but i but i take your point yeah no well i kind of agree with that and i kind of don't because he because he says we had to re meaning me by the way so i had to react to him doing that he had control of the situation if somebody breaks up with you and they're like actually we're done here's your ring back bye that's not them having control of the situation that's them ending the situation you know what i mean yeah no that's you're, true you're not expected to react if somebody's right. like i'm done with you yeah i mean you yeah. can react in private but it's kind of inconsequential now if somebody ends it so right that to me suggests that paul did not think this was game over 
but he felt like he had no counter move yeah which which is different john put him in check there because i don't think paul thinks he has no options i think paul thinks he has no good options <laughs> yeah yeah Paul also once admitted that for the first few months, he waited to see if John would come back and act like the divorce meeting never happened. Call a meeting the next day and be like, okay, so about this Christmas single. Right. Like that kind of thing, which would be <laughs> yeah. in character for John. Totally. But yeah, I think Paul is now in the position of, or he might have the mindset of, okay, you told me you want a divorce and I've, I'm going to believe you unless you do something to convince me otherwise. And it might take some convincing. Like yes. it might take a little more convincing than I've let you get away with in mm -hmm. the past. Yeah. Might have, it might have to be commensurate with the amount of pain that you caused me with your stupid divorce statement. Okay. Alrighty, righty, righty. Time to dive into the interviews. We <laughs> are going to finish this episode by taking a close look at one of John's interviews. And it is a fascinating one, mm -hmm. extremely re revealing. And all the more so because it takes place just three days after the divorce meeting when John sits down with Barry Miles. Barry Miles, as many of you may recall, was a good friend of Paul's throughout the 60s that may or may not be significant here. He later wrote the biography many years from now in 1997. Anyway, on this day, John is in a very bleak mood. He speaks rather candidly about his cyclical depressions. He also appears to determine that he will never truly be happy seem significant yeah so here's what he says to barry miles on september 23rd why shouldn't i be a poet or filmmaker a dancer an actor let's do it all while the going's good that's it really it's a freedom it's a relief because you can never escape from the hell on earth there's no escape from that even for two people who are as lucky as us two that have somebody that can be so close on all levels there's still great depths of misery to be found. That's the human condition, and there isn't any answer for that. Even yoga and all the different philosophies, they're all just paths to get out of it. On the way there, it's just the same for everyone. The highs and the lows are just greater as you develop your confidence, but it's still the same old games. Even talking about it, I get a bit, you know, they're there and there's no way out of it, but at least now I know there is a high plus a low and the low needn't last that long. At least here he's attempting or has partly found a way to kind of come to terms with the fact that this is his pattern and it might not ever change. Yeah but that the lows will be temporary, then again, so will the highs. Yeah. But maybe when he says the lows needn't last that long, maybe he's felt that he's discovered some coping mechanisms to kind of get through those. Because there is, there is a great deal of power 
in recognizing that about yourself mm-hmm. instead of telling yourself, oh, what's wrong with me? Why am I so depressed? You know, when I shouldn't be and you know, why yeah. can't I just get better? I mean, it's pretty bleak to just say, well, this is how it is and always will be. But on the other hand, at least then you're not surprised and you're not devastated when the low rolls back around. Maybe you can kind of say, okay, well, we knew this was going to happen. Here we are. But we have some ideas of how to, you know, how to cope. And we just need to have faith that we'll get through it again, like we always have before. But it, here, here it doesn't sound like he has any hope. And he's still like very defeatist. There's still great depths of misery to be found. Oh, yeah. Like that pit of despair hasn't gone anywhere. It's, it's still around the corner. A, absolutely. Yeah. And it seems like he was on a high three days ago in the divorce meeting with his adrenaline rush right? Right. Mm-hmm. And now the rush is gone and the depression is back. And maybe now that that buzz has worn off, he doesn't feel as great about the decision he made in that moment. Sure. Which would be totally consistent with John's sort of mercurial personality and his behavior patterns and his mood swings. And also for him to say, even two people who are as lucky as the two of us, it almost sounds like he's saying, well, I thought that a new partner or like true love would save me from this. Yeah, true reciprocated, openly expressed. Yes, consummated in every human way possible. Yes, yes. <laughs> on every level. But yeah. it turns out it didn't. And maybe if we want to read into it, he could be saying to Paul, I thought you were the problem. Mm-hmm. But Maybe it's actually me. Like, maybe this isn't about finding a new partner. Maybe it's about something internal. Because I'm still feeling depressed, even with Yoko. Yeah. Like, she can't fix me. Nope. John also speaks in detail about a film he saw recently, which leads into a striking description of a deep, and seemingly unattainable dream, which is to escape the chaos and pressures of celebrity life in favor of a quiet, modest lifestyle in the countryside, just making art for himself and his own enjoyment. John seems to have decided and is articulating aloud on September 23rd that this is never going to happen, that this particular dream is dead. Just last year, I remember watching that film on the Falcon, and it was so depressing. I remember seeing this film on BBC Two about a guy training a falcon, and he lived in this beautiful little cottage in Cornwall or somewhere like that. It was dreamlike. He didn't have any problems. It was just nature and him training the falcon, and it was just so beautiful. And I thought, God almighty, it's all I want, really. But it can't be, or I'd get it. Well, I can get it. I can get a cottage and live there if I wanted to. I always have this dream of being the artist in a little cottage. And I didn't do any of these gigs or publicity or anything like that. I just wrote poetry and a few oils, and that's the dream. Seeing this film reviewed for the past few days, it was just the end of it. Here we are in this grand palace. We've got nice people with us and everything's going well. But here's this film, and it makes us so sad to see it. But there's no way out. The grass is greener. 
It's strange, not that I want to be a falconer or anything. It just seemed like such a dream, living in a cottage and wandering in the trees. So this is a beautiful, poignant example of an underexamined aspect of John's character and inner world, his child of nature side, and his desire to step back from the spotlight, to simplify, and to live peacefully closer to nature. Throughout his entire life, John periodically expressed this dream. It's a subtle but reoccurring thread, and it crucially seems tangled up in his mind with the idea of personal happiness and closeness with his loved ones. The dream took various forms. Sometimes it was a Greek island, sometimes a cottage in Cornwall, sometimes a beach house in Montauk, sometimes a place by the water in Scotland. And while John never quite managed to fulfill this dream in any of these places, it was important to him and shouldn't be overlooked. This aspect of John has been erased in service, I think, to the false dichotomy that's so often drawn between him and Paul. Because if Paul is Mr. Nature Boy, sheep-shearing, dirty country hippie man, then that must mean, by necessity, that John is a city slicker. Because Lennon and McCartney are opposites. Obviously. And it's not a totally insane idea, because John did spend the rest of his life in New York City and Los Angeles. Right. But... Nevertheless, John keeps coming back to this dream. He speaks of it in his audio diaries in 1979. Actually, he called it Scotland outside of New York. I always felt free in Scotland. I'm sitting here waiting to be taken out to view yet another group of houses for our country retreat. This endless search for Scotland, outside of New York, (laughs) within an hour of New York. Well, now I've given up Scotland and the ocean. I'm settling for some grass and a tree. In 1979, he's still depressed about not having it. dreaming more or less and the dream I had was true so where did Paul and the other Beatles fit into this dream well it certainly sounds like the same thing John was looking for in 1967 when he famously tried to get the Beatles to move to a remote Greek island and here in 69 he's mentioning a cottage in Cornwall Barry Miles. We know the Beatles also tried to purchase a small UK town, or at least the idea was floated, and that at some point John did himself personally buy a small Irish island. Again, we think Barry Miles is an interesting choice for an interview. This could be a coincidence, of course, or it Mm -hmm. could have significance and been deliberate because Miles is obviously a close friend of Paul's, and maybe it was important to John that Paul hear this. So is it a coincidence that John is talking about like dismantling the Lennon-McCartney myth three weeks before he's talking about this dream he has that will never be attained? I don't think it's a coincidence, but I don't necessarily think they're the same thing. 
Is it just symptomatic of his general disillusionment? That would be my guess. Like, I think they're related. It's hard to dismiss the fact that this is something he's already tried to pull off with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. That it is what Paul ends up doing. Yeah. That it's something that John continues to pine for for the rest of his life. If we're to believe his own diaries. But being married to Yoko now, and I'm not, I don't mean this as any sort of disparagement of his relationship with Yoko, but John must know that she doesn't quite fit in with this fantasy. Well, it's not so maybe fantasy. No, not, not at all. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. He's like, well, I still want it, but if I can't have it with my Beatles, then there's kind of no point or it wouldn't be the same. Well, and as far as we know, the dream was not to live in a secluded tiny cabin with Paul for the rest of his no. life. It Mm-mm. was to have his whole Beatle family Support with system. him. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was Paul, but also the other Beatles and Cynthia and the kids and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody. So as much as they leaned into the, you know, John and Yoko against the world, like I do think there's a kind of a romantic angle to that, right? Oh, totally. Like just the two of us against the world. But I really don't think that that is his dream to be <laughs> with the one person secluded, you know, never to see other people. No, I think he leans toward the introvert side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I guess if introverts can also be extreme exhibitionists, <laughs> but I think more importantly that, that his depressions and insecurities sometimes cause him to self-isolate in an unhealthy way but i i don't think he's really a true hermit at heart he's not thorough he often communicates the opposite how painful it is for him to be cut off from his people that he forgets who he is when he's not around them yeah and i don't want to get too far into potentially sounding like i'm diagnosing him with anything specific but his comments about being a social chameleon that he mimics whoever he's with at any given moment Mm -hmm. And his descriptions of feeling empty when the cameras stop rolling. We do have several indications that he struggles with an unstable sense of self and with feelings of emptiness, which is alleviated by being around his loved ones. So, of course, he wants to be around them all the time. If it's painful for him to be without them. So, honestly, I think his nature fantasy sounds amazing. (laughs) Yes. If I were as rich as a beetle, yeah, I'd be well, I'd be going for that. Well, I mean, that is pretty much the dream, right? You get yeah. to be around your loved ones. You all have everything you need, all your comforts, mm-hmm. and you get to spend time <laughs> together and mm-hmm. just do whatever you want to do. It sounds amazing. Well, and the other awesome part of this fantasy is the artistic fulfillment aspect that he would be able to create unhurriedly and purely for self-expression i mean it sounds like he kind of wants to take the time crunch and the commercial pressure out of the equation and then also in 1975 he mentioned something similar when he talks about marrying a rich old man or woman who could support him while he contentedly makes his Mm -hmm. art what were you doing what were you feeling and thinking when you were 15 i was thinking If only I can get out of Liverpool and be famous and rich, wouldn't it be great? (laughs) 
I was always thinking that I was going to be a famous artist, you know, and possibly I'd have to marry a very rich old lady, old man, you know, to, to look after me while I did my art. But then rock and roll came along, and I thought, ah, this is the one. Just yeah. like his plan B, apparently. <laughs> if, if the Beatles fell through, he'd become a sugar baby. I thought it was his plan A, to be honest. Oh. The Beatles was his plan B. <laughs> well, to be fair, becoming a sugar baby would have been a lot more likely than the Beatles. It's true, <laughs> actually. <story>. It's true. <laughs> there are a lot more sugar babies in the world than Beatles. Amen. <laughs> He's Absolutely. cute and charming. He could have done cute, it. Cute, charming, it brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes, everyone was in love with John. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Would have been no problem. But we got the good timeline. <laughs> uh, anyway. I just, yep. I can't shake the feeling that that he's saying this three days later to Barry Miles <laughs> declaring that he's never going to have it, even if he did try to get it. He knows it can never be the dream. That just feels significant to me. I agree. I see how I could be happy, but I also know that I never could have that happiness, even though I could do the thing that would make me happy, but I can't actually do that for some reason. I don't know exactly what he's saying, but maybe Paul's supposed to. And maybe, I mean, this is, this is reaching, but he talks about getting to retirement age. So maybe that was something they talked about, like, well, we'll write songs together till we're 60, and then we'll retire to the countryside. Yeah. And sit by the hearth together. Well, see, and that's the thing is, like, if that was the case, like, I know that that sounds... Over the top? It sounds over the top when we say it, but I don't think it was... I think that's very much what he was thinking in 1967. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that pretty much was the plan for them to grow old together. Yes. And I think John was like, what's wrong with that? Why wouldn't I grow old with my best friend, songwriter, Mm -hmm. partner? Totally. (laughs) We're going to have houses right next to each other. And Mm -hmm. we're going to write songs in the afternoons on our porches while we smoke pipes or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be scary to lose that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it sounds like childish and whatever, but John describes himself as, as childlike all the time and especially yeah. in this period mm-hmm. and idealistic and um and romantic and also it's like it kind of symptomatic of that era too like right the dream of the 60s that collective flower power dream of peace and harmony and community mm-hmm. and all those wonderful things and john says the dream is over in his song god from the plastigono band album which is basically his primal scream album from 1970 and it climaxes with the line, I don't believe in Beatles. Yes. And I know that a lot of people, when discussing that song and that album, talk about the dream is over, meaning the dream of the 60s. And John actually did reference that. So that is a part of it. But Beatles was the final thing because uh, it's like I no longer believe in in myth you know and Beatles is another myth you know I don't believe in it the the dream's over you know I'm not just talking about the Beatles is over I'm talking about the generation thing you know the dream's over like it's over you know and we gotta 
well, I have anyway personally got to get down to so-called reality. Further in the interview, Wenner asks him again, you say on the record, I don't believe in Beatles. And John responds, yeah, I don't believe in the Beatles. That's all. I don't believe in the Beatles myth. I don't believe in the Beatles. There is no other way of saying it, is there? I don't believe in them, whatever they were supposed to be in everybody's head, including our own heads for a period. It was a dream. I don't believe in the dream anymore. <laughs> That's intense. Like reading it intense. out loud, it's even kind of more striking. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> so that song, God, we have a demo of it. And the demo, he, John has a spoken word, like a talking blues kind of intro, mm -hmm. where he very explicitly says, um, I got a message from above and the message concerns our love and the angels must have sent me here to, to deliver this to you or something like that. Oh my God. It's pretty explicit and i don't think that the song god is about his love with yoko no and in the demo he gets down to the end and he's like i don't believe in beatles i just believe in me but in the demo there's no yoko oh, in the in me. that's right that's right just says at the end i don't believe in beatles i just believe in me eureka brother yeah so again unless yoko is his brother <laughs> yeah and he's like hey yoko i learned something about our love want to hear it god is a concept by which we measure our pain <laughs> like what <laughs> pretty sure he's not speaking to her no no, he is not. Oh my God, John. And then what about um, when he says, I was the dream weaver, but now I'm reborn. He's always twinning those two concepts, rebirth and the dream. Right, right. Yes. Rebirth is an idea that John introduces at the beginning of 1970 in the midst of the trial separation. He says the Beatles are on a break, which will either result in a rebirth or a death we're gonna talk more about that in future episodes and he's doing it again on the album here yes yes and like now he's now he's born again but but Alone. now he's rejecting the beat yeah exactly. yes mm -hmm. he's like oh you didn't want to be reborn together that's right well then i guess i'll be reborn by myself by myself and guess what the new john lennon hates, hates your fucking you. ass <laughs> Oh, John. 
Yeah. Jen off told me that was the best way That's to right. get over you. So exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're going to try that out. The more and more I think of it, the more I really, this is like sort of a prescribed course of treatment. Yeah. Like try to turn your love into, into anger. Yeah. That's probably all it ever was anyway. When you, when you feel sad, just realize that's a feeling of, of needingness of wanting something that mm -hmm. you're, that you're not going to get out of this person. So mm -hmm. don't want it. Yeah. Ugh. Because yeah. it's not real love anyway. It's, it's just exactly. your own neediness. It's a false sense of love that developed from, uh, because your parents didn't love you enough. Yep. I'm not deep diving into Jenna, but I would be not be surprised at all to find out that he thinks there's a, you know, sex and violence. Oh, for sure. Correlation. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, and also that it's like the natural state of unrelated yes. males to be op op oppositional towards each mm -hmm. other. Yep. I mean, to be honest, he's not the only one who thinks that. Like a lot of a lot of not people think all. that way. Yeah. <laughs> As we know. Yeah. This insistence on seeing everything through the alpha yeah, the dominance who, who's, paradigm. Who's, yes, exactly. Who's dominating? Yeah. at any given time which is john all the time by the way it, and the, except for when he gets tired and then sneaky manipulative rat face paul comes up and sneaks up behind and like usurps <laughs> the position <laughs> he's weak now is my time to strike <laughs> maxwell silver hammer <laughs> oh my god goodness keep yes. doing the heroin john <laughs> <laughs> i'm so glad brian died <laughs> so what about it's interesting that he he keeps he keeps saying it i don't believe in the beatles i don't believe in the beatles i don't believe in the beatles it's like he's trying to work himself up to saying something more but then he mm. just gives up it's like there's no other way of saying it is there you know, people say it all the time and it's true. He is such a good communicator. He's so articulate mm -hmm. that I can't help thinking that he, he, he can't put it into words because he doesn't want to put it into words. Well, that's a great point. Uh, so I, I, can't, I agree. I can't tell you that I'm in love with Paul and thought he was in love with me and that we'd be together forever. And so now friendship as a concept is bullshit, I guess, and an illusion. Oh my God, <laughs> my world is crumbling. And by the way, that wasn't even a real feeling that was just mm -hmm. misplaced. But I, what I'm saying is, I don't think John is in primal scream therapy, screaming, the dream is over, talking about the <laughs> 60s in a generalized fashion. You know what I mean? No, he's obviously no. talking about his personal experience, <laughs> right? But when he's discussing it to Rolling Stone magazine, he's generalizing it so that everybody can relate to it or whatever. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it wasn't personal and if an idyllic country retirement with all his besties was part of john's plan what he was expecting to happen as he aged and he's thinking that's what my life will become because i want that and it's the kind of thing that paul and george and ringo would want because they also have an affinity for nature and we always want the same thing <laughs> so no doubt that will continue and then if he loses them as partners and now he has Yoko whom he knows 
isn't a nature person. So maybe that's yeah. part of it. He's like, well, I've switched trains now. This one isn't going to Cornwall. This one yeah. wants to go to New York City. Dang, ow. That hurts to let that go. Second thing John addresses is his Beatles era depression. And we're going to read another excerpt in a second. But um, his timing is a bit jumbled here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he says he was depressed after Brian died, which he calls the Maharishi period, which I assume means the trip to India. But he also says he was depressed for nearly two years and still in it by Pepper, that he was coming out of it during Maharishi until he was set back by Brian's sudden death. So I assume what John means is that he was depressed going into Pepper, was coming out of his depression towards the end of Pepper, feeling good throughout the summer of 67, but then was set back at the end of the summer since Brian passed away in late August while the Beatles were at Maharishi's lecture in Wales, which might be why um, John associates Maharishi with Brian's death. Yeah, sure. He says, we all went through a depression after Maharishi and Brian died. It wasn't really to do with Maharishi. It was just that period. I was really going through the what's it all about type thing. This songwriting is nothing, it's pointless, and I'm no good, I'm not talented, and I'm shitty, and I couldn't do anything but be a Beatle. What am I going to do about it? It lasted nearly two years, and I was still in it during Pepper. I know Paul wasn't at the time. He was feeling full of confidence, and I was going through murder during those periods. I was just about coming out of it around Maharishi. Even though Brian had died, that knocked us back again. Well, it knocked me back. All right. So, you know, John is reiterating that while Paul was, from John's point of view anyway, um, on fire creatively and feeling great about himself, John was suffering from depression and low self-esteem. Again, this is something he expressed directly to Paul weeks before in the 4442 meeting. Earlier in the year, during the get back sessions he told paul i'd have to swallow my ego for you i'd have to smother my jealousy for you to carry on for whatever reasons there is so john keeps trying to convey that there's something about competing with paul that makes john feel bad about himself he says i'm no good i'm not talented okay so we don't really know exactly why he feels this way although in the september 8th meeting he did indicate that he wasn't getting enough praise and encouragement from Paul Mm -hmm. and later in 1970 we know that he says Yoko Phil Spector and Alan Klein are finally providing me with the love I needed and didn't get from George and Paul what's important here though is that none of these complaints are musical like none of this is about Maxwell (laughs) you know (laughs) right this is this is not why the Beatles broke up. All of this right. is about personal feelings, very tender, complicated, interpersonal feelings of uh, inadequacy and bad self-esteem and lack of confidence. And, mm-hmm. and contrary to legend, has nothing to do with Lenin 
getting bored with McCartney or or rejecting him. It's about Lennon not getting enough love and support from McCartney. It it seems that you know the Pepper period was a high for John, but in retrospect, he might either not remember or not interpret it that way, or maybe there were a lot of ups and downs. It lasted nearly two years, okay, and I was still in it during Pepper. I take that to mean I was depressed for the two years pre-Pepper. Mm-hmm. Well, that would actually track his like his so-called fat Elvis period. Yes, was so, in sixty-five. Absolutely. So from like sixty-five, sixty-six, going into Pepper, meaning mm-hmm. I got better for a little bit in nineteen sixty-seven, and that tracks with everything we know. Yeah, that tracks with film and photo of John from 1967. That tracks with All You Need Is Love, uh-huh. the Greek Island. He looks blissfully happy during that period. Yeah. Just to draw the parallel, in case it means anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that two-year period would be, if you look at the be- the grand scheme of the Beatles, that's the period where Paul is living separately. Paul is blossoming as a songwriter he's making new friends he has a new friend group in london you know mm-hmm. all these things that john wasn't happy about um, right yeah paul is less available i mean that would explain the um i know paul wasn't at that time he was feeling full of confidence and i was going through murder during those periods i mean that's mm-hmm. pretty brutal his self-worth as a songwriter should not be bad at that time i mean the only thing that you can sort of directly correlate it with is the rise in paul's productivity and yeah the rise in the recognition that paul is getting that Mm. seems to be Mm. you know maybe why john's confidence is dipping paul's songwriting might be getting stronger and better but yeah john's songwriting is not getting worse right 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 right. (laughs) it's also shifting into a new gear you know no musicologist is going to look at the beatles catalog and be like clearly lennon was going through murder here no he couldn't produce a decent song from right. 1965 <laughs> to 1967 like right, right, his, right. his most well-known best work mm-hmm. that he ever produced in his life yeah i don't think john's depressions in the beatle years at least ever impacted the quality of his work I guess you could argue it impacted the quantity, maybe intermittently, starting in 67. Sure. But that, I think, is just in comparison to the earlier years when he was really churning out songs like crazy. And I, and I mean that, you know, I use churning out deliberately. A Hard Day's Night was not all gems. And that's what's weird, too, because in retrospect, he really stands by I Am the Walrus and All You Need Is Love. Yes. And, and A Day Fields. in the Life and Strawberry mm-hmm. Fields. So like your yeah, four favorite like, songs are from that year john <laughs> that's true oh that's true so that you know there's quality there's quantity and then there's also content and his depression absolutely impacts his content oh, during yeah. the white album for especially when his lyrics clearly show he's very depressed yeah even though again yeah. he's on a roll quantity wise well that's a good point too so I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a fool's errand to try to, you know, chart John's depression and find a cause for it. You know, maybe that's an impossible task. 
but we, I think we can, if he had a happy period somewhere around the Sergeant Pepper era, it really yeah. seems to have been when he and Paul were the closest to each other. Yes, exactly. Post acid, when Paul's uh-huh. talking about them being all the same person. Yep, he finally yeah. took acid. They merged. Mind meld or whatever. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 And he's living with Paul. Yep. And working all the time together. Yeah. They're sharing the spotlight and, mm-hmm. you know, basking in the glow together. Yes. Yeah. And they look very, very close. I mean, you know, pictures can only tell us so much, but like so many of the pictures from 67 are candid. They're not looking like that for the cameras. They just right. look like that because that's how right. they are. <laughs> doesn't even have to be like a romantic thing it could just be that like living with paul and working that closely to him was the support that john needed and like maybe he's just maybe that's just the level of commitment and support john needs from a a creative partner and best friend and you know gosh how to say this you if you love someone that much it makes you happy to be around them, but also you love them so much because it makes you happy to be around. You do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like you, you love people who make you happy. Who make you happy, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to expand on this a little bit because I feel like, you know, that people have it backwards a little. When I hear it framed like, oh, poor dumb John for being so mindlessly infatuated with Paul that's the only reason he wants to be close with Paul that's the only reason he tolerates Paul's nonsense it's because he's shallowly and unhealthily infatuated Mm. with Paul and that really bothers me I think it's totally backwards I think John is enamored with Paul as an outgrowth of how much he likes Paul as a person for himself yes how much he enjoys his humor and his personality and his talent, his company, his support, and has since the beginning. Yes. Yes. I mean, John said the same thing about Yoko in 1980, basically. He's just like, what? Am I just like dickmatized for 15 years? Is that why I'm working with Paul? Like, I'm just so stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> dickmatized. You don't have a crush on somebody for 10 years who, by the way, you've seen in every, you know, undignified position. Yes. <laughs> and like, yeah, the, the magic. <laughs> exactly. <It's> like, <laughs> the, the veil has been removed a long time ago. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If the love, if the love goggles are still on, it's for, it's for legit reasons. Of course we might like john or paul but like we have not we've seen a one millionth of what they've seen of each other they've seen all (laughs) the worst stuff and they know all the worst stuff about each other oh yeah and they're still crazy for each other right because that's real that's real love that's how you feel about your best friends (laughs) yeah so of course john would be lamenting losing that Yeah, of course. Everybody's talking at me. I don't 
Yeah, so that's where John's head is at. Three days after the divorce meeting. Mm. Which, call me kooky, but he definitely does not seem elated and energized and relieved anymore, even if he appeared to be that way at the meeting to Paul seems to have worn off. So on the flip side, what is Paul's first post-divorce meeting appearance? A couple days later, on September 25th, he and Linda attend the Midnight Cowboy film premiere. And Paul looks great. <laughs> he really does. They I mean, both look great. They both but... look great. Yeah. But Paul is like glowing shave and a haircut his skin is glowing he looks like he's lost almost 10 pounds <laughs> like he really looks transformed like he he looks like nicole kidman coming out of that divorce of tom cruise <laughs> like <laughs> radiant yes he 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 looks radiant and the thing is that we know paul was not okay right um yeah he has just experienced the trigger for what will become a long and deep depression exactly as we discussed we know that he went home and and wept for an hour about it mm -hmm. like he took it very very hard so we're not saying that we think he was happy about this announcement we, he definitely wasn't however i do think it's possible that maybe after the initial like shock and heartbreak you know, like the same way that John has a surge in the divorce meeting mm -hmm. when he blurts this out, you know, maybe Paul had a surge of like, you know, what make this pain stop if I didn't care anymore. Yep. So exactly. I'm not going to care. So I don't, I'm not going to care. I don't fucking care yeah. anymore. He's out of my life. I don't have mm -hmm. to give a shit anymore. And yep. that he can't hurt me. And maybe he felt good for a couple of days. And, and he rode that high out in public. <laughs> to make sure he got his picture taken looking good at this random movie premiere mm. not that it isn't a great moment in cinema i adore my <laughs> cowboy but that's not the point <laughs> who doesn't yeah. but you know what paul had nothing to do with the film why is he at a premiere i don't know right it looks like a date night for them you know they're just yeah, like let's does. get a babysitter and uh go out <laughs> to the movies and maybe it only lasted you know that night i mean maybe he maybe it's like jab the president full of steroids and put him up for photo op you know and then he comes back and collapses or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but but i started thinking like maybe that was the point maybe the whole point of going out was to get photographed looking good looking like you're happy looking like you're over it as a message to john because he's gonna see those pictures either conscious or unconscious um might have been like a fuck you john sure and if that's the case he might it might be a cover yes in the grand scheme of things it's definitely a cover we like we of we know he yeah. feels awful and yes he's an expert at hiding his feelings well that's true but but he definitely is on the verge of a depression where he's not capable of that which which tells you right. how bad how bad it was like right he's gonna be not able to get out of bed shortly but but look at him in the divorce the pictures from the divorce meetings i mean he looks awful and he sounds extremely tired in that interview that he does the day before 
right he talks to david wig so Mm -hmm. he's getting to the point where he can't keep up the charade anyway exactly so i'm and the reason why i bring that up is because those pictures are shocking when you see them the september 25th pictures like yeah in context it's like yes what yeah yeah they don't make sense but it takes you out of the story like he looks so good and you know again i don't want to like keep going on about how great he looks but he looks confident he looks happy he and Linda look lovely together and you know he might be just so fired up to stick it to John that he's riding high on that you know I guess what I'm saying is we can't really qualify what the feeling is in him or what his internal monologue is but whatever it is it was enough to to get out there and like flaunt it for the cameras a little bit Mm-hmm. and then at least go home i mean he only has to make it into the theater right <laughs> he only just has to get his picture taken for like 15 minute stops right so as long as he can do that he can make his point it's something that he found that gave him enough confidence to and enough fuck yeah. you energy you know yeah yeah and that might have been a bit calculated but like the other point is that if paul's last appearance was him looking like a million bucks and beaming with the lovely Linda on his arm. (laughs) Then that is the image that John would be left with. So he wouldn't necessarily assume that Paul is crippled with depression. Oh, I don't think he ever assumes that. I don't think he ever has any inkling. I mean, what is that that one magazine said he was uh and like ensconced up in his castle in scotland staring at his own reflection or remember what oh yeah some paper because paul commented on it in his castle (laughs) yeah right yeah aka his shack that didn't even have a mirror yeah but like you say maybe at that time he would rather people thought that than than known the truth well, he definitely doesn't want people spying no. on his pain, you know? He's well, absolutely. He hides. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing it's always overlooked. And the thing is, is that it does matter. Like, if that was John's last impression of Paul, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, him looking sick in the divorce meeting. Right. If five days later he shows up like, hey, how's everybody doing? I'm feeling great. How about you, Bob? Nice mm-hmm. to see you. You know, mm-hmm. that's going to affect his outlook. Yeah. So that should be factored into, and that's the last public appearance that Paul makes until like April of the next mm-hmm. year. But this goes back to the issue of bravado. Like even you and I discussing this right now, we're just like, anyway, that's bravado. He doesn't feel great because we know right right feel right we say it all the time but it's worth repeating <laughs> is that this is one of the problems with telling the Beatles story is that people take all of john's bravado as truth right and then when paul has bravado they don't even acknowledge it mm. <laughs> like this isn't even incorporated into the story like if john doesn't know how paul is doing that's important yeah, John Judden doesn't have a lot to go on, but what he does have to go on is misleading. Right. Although, I don't know, does John care about what the papers say? 
about him and the Beatles. Doesn't he have more important things to do? <laughs> that was the most important thing to John for his entire <laughs> life. <laughs> Let's put it this way. He was an avid newspaper reader. <laughs> With some very specific interests. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had a few notifications set up, if you get my point. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Another Kind of Mine. Please join us next time for the second episode of A Mistake in Many Ways, How Lennon and McCartney Accidentally Broke the Beatles. In episode two, we'll examine the first stage of the trial separation. While Paul retreats to Scotland and experiences a traumatic depression, John makes a series of statements about the fate of the Beatles that appear to walk back his initial intentions. We'll examine how Paul is struggling during this period and the deluge of problems he is facing. Join us next time. This wild and crazy train wreck of a ride. Uh, Daphne, it's been a pleasure. I do not want a divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good, because I was lying to you when I said I wanted a divorce. I sure got you. That's why I'm chasing you. I can That's read right. through your bluff and bravado. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> oh, goodbye. Thanks for listening. You mean twitchy like pie? Pie? Yeah, he ate some twitchy pie. <laughs> Before that. Well, he was in New York. American is twitchy pie. <laughs> oh, twitchy pie. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Leave us a nice review if you feel so inclined. Please do. That would be nice. (laughs) Clink, clink, clink. Oh, I love you so much. You're welcome.